With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz, and the NFL Combine is just two weeks away. So we're going to get into some draft talk with Mr. Rob Staten of SeahawksDraftBlog.com. Rob, uh, it's it's we've we had a chance to watch the Super Bowl since last time we talked, and now can you believe it? It's just a couple weeks away before that that week of NFL Combine. Yeah, I'm ready for it now. I think this is the the quietest part of the season, really, in terms of, of things building up. Now we need to get to the Combine because that's where everything happens. You find out an awful lot about the players that are going to be in the draft class. You find their testing numbers. We will have a real insight into the types of players that could be an option for the Seahawks. Because little things like, you know, we, we're going to see who the cornerbacks are that they may target. We're going to get to find out who are the defensive linemen who run good short shuttles, who's got the arm length of 33 plus inch arms that they could really look for, the explosive offensive linemen, who are the running backs who fit their prototypes. We're going to get all of that information over the course of a weekend. So that's great to get. But also the teams are going to be talking to, to themselves um, among each other and also to the agents to find out you know, what kind of value certain players are going to have on the open market when that starts? Um, what Who's going to get franchise tag? Who might be available via trades? And these are all big things because the Seahawks have got a huge offseason where they're going to be very active in free agency, could be very active in the trade market. And then, of course, they've got a whole host of draft picks coming up as well. So this is a very busy period. It's kind of like the calm before the storm. Just a couple of weeks to go and then everything's going to kick off. Well, and that's one thing that we do see with the Seahawks is that when they do have a problem that they really want to address in the offseason, Generally, they do it in free agency first. And I guess the only time I can really look back and say they had a problem that they wanted to address and they did it through the draft was when they picked Rashad Penny in the first round. Yeah, and they they really like to get after their needs. Now, sometimes those needs are best served in the draft. So if you've got a lot of players at a certain position, for example, if you think back to 2016, their biggest need was to get a right tackle. And they were very comfortable going into the draft and Jermaine Effetti was there. There were several other players that they could have gone for as well. At the back end of round one, they, were, they felt quite comfortable addressing that need then. Rashad Penny is a good example of that as well. But, you know, the, I think quite often if there's an opportunity to fill your biggest needs in free agency or get something done, they like to do that too. So we saw in 2013, Michael Bennett and Cliff Averill come in after trading for Percy Harvin. They wanted a touchdown maker. They wanted some pass rush and they got it. Uh, in 2015, it was all about getting that big target off the back of the disappointing Super Bowl loss. They're going to go and get Jimmy Graham via a trade. So I think what I would expect from free agency is that they're going to really attack the defensive line men who are available on the open market. That could mean a trade. That that could be the best value there. When you actually acquire somebody who's on an existing contract, that can be better value for money than going out and having to spend huge money on other players. They'll want to re-sign Jadavian Clowney and keep him and then build towards that defensive line. Tight end is going to be a target probably in free agency. And if they can get the defensive line and tight end in over those sort of first few days of free agency, then they can look to the draft. And then if they've got holes on the offensive line they need to fill, this is a good offensive line draft. If they want to add another weapon for uh, Russell Wilson, it's a great draft for receivers. So they can kind of use the, the free agent market, the trade market, and the draft to fill the number of needs that they have 
but they're going to be very aggressive. I think this is the, probably the most aggressive they're going to be probably in the Carroll era, maybe even since 2011. That's probably the only comparison you can make here in terms of getting stuff done, building this team and trying to put themselves in position to win a Super Bowl next season. Well, and they've never been shy about giving up their first round pick, whether it's trading for Percy Harvin, trading for Jimmy Graham. That is something that they could do. But, you know, I also think about some of the later round picks that they could potentially trade. And one guy, when you're talking about the defensive line and a guy who could potentially be a cap casualty, the Minnesota Vikings have so many guys under big contracts and they're already over their cap. They have to pay Kirk Cousins, who is under a guaranteed contract. So unless they decide to sign him long term, which I don't know if they're going to go ahead and do, but. You know, I think of a guy like Everson Griffin who could potentially be had. I, I don't think they would have to trade a first round pick for him. The Vikings could look to dump him as a salary cap casualty. You know, if you could get him for, you know, a fourth round pick, a later round pick for a guy like him who I could see that being a potential option for Seattle. Absolutely. I think the Seahawks are going to be like sharks circling in the water with some of these teams. You know, Minnesota are one of them, Atlanta's another. There are several teams who are, Jacksonville's another one. There are several teams that have got real cap issues. And, you know, the Seahawks will be able to go to them and say, look, you may be thinking about cutting these players. We'll acquire them, you know, for, for some draft picks. If you want, you will get something back in return. Um, you're not just going to lose them for free. And then you can you can go and get these guys. So I think that Everson Griffin is a, a perfect example of that. Now, you know, the, there is some history between Minnesota and Everson Griffin. I think mentally he... I think it's been quite a big deal for him to be in Minnesota. So that is something that the Seahawks will want to look into before they trade something for him. But he's definitely uh, an option and the kind of player that they need. It could even be that the Seahawks pull some kind of a deal to get Stefan Diggs as well. I mean, he's very close to Russell Wilson. Mm. And, you know, is there, a, is there like a two for one offer that they could get, you know, give up a pick or two, get two players, fill two needs and, and really help out the Minnesota Vikings in the process because they need to, be able to do something in the open market you know they, they've got a safety who they really want to keep but at the moment they have nowhere near the money to keep him because they've they've got too many players um tied up so they're going to have to make some moves can the seahawks get some value there and get some some good players on the cheap as a consequence of that atlanta are probably going to lose austin huber because they just can't afford to keep him so can the seahawks do something with him and you know my favorite idea um i don't know how realistic it is is the, is the calais campbell one it's you know jacksonville uh, have got some very obvious ways to, to to save some money. Marcel Darius will save $20 million if they cut him. That's an inevitability. There are other players they can move on from too. But, you know, if the Seahawks could toss a pick the way of Jacksonville, I know he's old, but he's still producing as a top five defensive lineman and, and get Calais Campbell on a very modest $15 million for next year. Someone who's just going to provide that experience, that leadership, will completely solidify the interior, can pass rush, can do all those things. You know, the idea of him and Clowney on the same line you know, that to me is a, is a championship defensive line just with those two guys on it. So is that a move that can be made? There's, there's countless options here. And whether it's mid to late round picks that we're talking about here, or whether they go out and make a huge splash, they're going to have to weigh everything up. You know, the great thing about the combine again is that they can see what the options are. Who are the guys? They will already have guys in their mind that they're thinking this could be a, you know, a first round target or a top pick target for us. When they actually see these guys work out and they get the complete picture, they can say, okay, where is the value? Is the value with, keeping our picks and trading down, spending the pick, even moving up a little bit? Or is it to actually use that draft pick, that number 27, to go and acquire a veteran player to come and bookend Jadavian Clowney, for example, or, or blow up the interior? I mean, one of the names that's been mentioned is Chris Jones. He's going to be franchise tagged by Kansas City. 
Um, do they have the money and the capability to sign into a massive contract? Perhaps not. Could it be a reverse Frank Clark with Chris Jones coming over? You know, that's that's something that they could also look into as well. So this is a huge, huge offseason. All of these things are going to be considered. They could trade that 27. They could use it. Either they could trade up or down with it. Um, they could be very active in free agency. They could trade mid to late round picks. They're going to be so busy. I think it's going to be a very exciting time for Seahawks fans. And I'm kind of really excited to find out exactly what they're going to do over the next few weeks. How likely do you think it is that they trade up? Because one of the things going for them this year is that they have those two picks at the end of round two. And if you pair either either or both of those picks along with their number 27 pick overall, you're talking about uh, enough draft capital that could move them up into the top 15. I think it's unlikely that they'll trade up. I mean, it's just not happening in round one. I mean, they have done it in the past. They did it with Jaron Reed to move up in round two. They've done it with DK Metcalf to move back into round two right at the end of it to go and get him. And they did it with Tyler Lockett. So they have traded up for significant players. And, you know, I think the Reed, the Metcalf and the Lockett, when they've traded up, they've actually had some success there. Um, but when I just look at the board and, and the way that it is and, you know, the way that I'm kind of thinking the first round is going to play out um, with my own personal projection, I can't really see the player that they would trade up for. Um, I have to say that I think round one is is pretty much set up that, it, you know, the, the, the position that you're looking at is, is wide receiver. Not necessarily because that's the biggest need. That is just where the talent and the players are in this draft. I think that the offensive linemen are going to come off the board very quickly. And I think receiver is going to be where the value is for a lot of teams. Now, it's whether or not the Seahawks can fill their other needs before the draft that they could maybe consider taking a receiver. Um, with their first pick. If they, if they can do that, then they'll done a great job in free agency. But that's kind of where the value is for me at the moment. Um, and the other thing to remember, I think with that top pick, whatever they do, the Seahawks have always gone for traits. They've always looked for the guys who have incredibly unique size and length or quickness um, or freakish physical talent, explosive ability. You know, the players who separate from everybody else, who've got that massive ceiling, that major upside, you know, Russell Okung with his 36-inch arms and his incredible combine, and Earl Thomas's suddenness and quickness, Bruce Irvin's explosive quickness and incredible speed that he had. You know, Frank Clark with his physical profile. These are the kind of players that they've often taken very, very early, except last year when they took LJ Collier, who was much more of a modest athlete, had some explosive physicality, but didn't have the quickness or the speed, and it didn't really work out for him as a rookie. So I think that off the back of that, I think more than ever, they're going to be pitching for unique traits and upside this year. And there are a handful of players that look like could fit in the 27 kind of range for the Seahawks in that regard. But there are not a million players like that. And that could be another reason why ultimately they decide we're better off trading number 27, going and getting a, a fantastic proven pass rusher um, who's on a decent contract, not a ridiculous contract to play across from Jadavian Clowney. Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on today, Rob, was to keep those traits in mind and go through some of the mock drafts that have players projected to Seattle because you are so dialed in with with those types of traits that the team likes to look for. And with that in mind, I, I want to start off with Dan Kadar of SB Nation. And let's try not to insult Dan because uh, maybe I can get him on the show sometime with him being part of SB Nation. But starting off with what he had projected for the Seattle Seahawks, he goes with an edge defender from Notre Dame, Julian Aquara. Yeah, you know, I think it makes some sense because the one thing that Julian Aquara has is great speed. And the one thing the Seahawks don't have on their defensive line at the moment is that speed. And, and when you watch Aquara, he's, you know, the other thing that Pete Carroll sort of highlighted um, at the offseason, at the end of the season was 
they're, they're not defending the perimeter run very well. And there is evidence on tape of, of Aquara, you know, getting out to the edge, bouncing runs outside and then tracking down ball carriers from behind, stuff like that. He is pretty adept at doing the things that the Seahawks need. Um, he seems to have the arm length as well. And, you know, I think he was clocked, you know, well over 20 miles an hour running. And, and that's quite special as well. Now you would expect that he's going to run very well at the combine if, if he tests, because he's been nursing an ankle injury and wasn't at the senior bowl. Um, I think the one thing with Aquara though, is he's just very inconsistent. You can see him if, if people want to sort of see him at his best, then go and watch the Notre Dame Virginia game, um, from 2019. Um, but if you want to see him being, you know, the other end of the scale, then watch the Georgia game when he was taking on Andrew Thomas and Isaiah Wilson and barely registered anything in the entire game, which was a really significant game for Notre Dame at the time. Um, and was a chance for them to prove that they belonged at the top end of the table for college football. And, and he didn't really have much impact at all. So it's that, it's that inconsistency, which is an issue with him. You kind of wonder how he will translate to the next level. Is he going to be somebody who can be a, a 10 to 15 sack guy? Or is he more of a compliment type player? But he has some of the traits that we should be talking about here. And he will be somebody to watch the combine because they need some speed in their pass rush. They don't have any. Aquara seems to have some. Well, this was a two-round mock draft that Dan did, so let's go to round two and the number 59 pick. He sends Adam Troutman, uh, the tight end from Dayton, to the Seahawks. See, I, I like the thought process that Dan has, has gone with there because they do need speed on the defensive line and they do need to add a tight end at some point. So you, you can't knock the two positions that he's gone for. I think with Troutman, um, it's hard to really get a handle on him watching his tape because he, he plays for Dayton and you would expect him to play well in that level of competition. There's not much in terms of the way of blocking. I think with him, we really need to see how he tests. Now, he had a very good senior ball and was running routes like a wide receiver. Um, fantastically positive reviews for the way that he played. Um, the little clips that they showed on Twitter were very, very positive, I thought. Body control's good. He seems to be an athlete. But with the tight end position, you, you know, it's George Kittle runs like a 4-5-0 um, and has got really explosive leaping ability and, and had a decent short shuttle. You know, we need to sort of see whether Troutman can do that. The Seahawks spent a lot of time focusing on short shuttle and three code for tight ends. There's like a real track record there. That, you know, all of the tight ends that they've drafted or signed have been really, really agile. You know, their agility testing has been fantastic. So if Troutman runs well in the short shuttle and the three cone, like any of the ones in this class, he could be an option for the Seahawks. If he doesn't run well in the agility testing, it's more, it's less likely he'll be considered by them. And the final pick that he goes with, with the number 64 pick that they got from the Chiefs and the Frank Clark trade, Bryce Hall, cornerback from Virginia. I think Bryce Hall's always been a little bit overrated. Um, there was there was one clip a year ago of him. Um, it's a very famous clip of somebody, a receiver getting downfield, breaking free, running to the end zone, and then Bryce Hall appears from nowhere into the shot, chases him down. It's it's a great hustle play. He shows amazing speed and, and sort of competitiveness to get down there and prevent the touchdown. Um, but that alone is not doesn't make you a great cornerback. He had a really serious injury during the 2019 season, and I don't know if he's going to work out at the combine or not. Mm. And it's it's one of those. You know, if he if he falls because of the injury and he has the arm length and the size that they look for, 
maybe they consider him on day three, but the Seahawks just don't take cornerbacks this early. No, that's what I was going to say. You know, for them to take a cornerback at the end of round two, it would have to be somebody pretty special because Shaquille Griffin is what the top drafted cornerback. And I think one of the reasons why Pete Carroll liked him so much was because of his speed. And so I, I do think that there's going to have to be some kind of significant trait that Pete Carroll really values to, to go with a cornerback in round two. I think if, you know, if they're in the top 10, for example, this year, I think that they would consider, just to give this, this as an example, I think they would consider drafting Jeffrey Akuda in, mm. the, in the top 10 because he's got the length, he's got amazing size, and he's an unbelievable athlete. You know, he's a 140 scoring spark. He's going to run like a 4-3. He will have like a 40-plus inch vertical. He will do everything that the Seahawks love in a cornerback prospect. He, he's pretty much, he's a star in the making. He is he's like the ideal cornerback prospect. And I think if the Seahawks are in the top 10, they would look at an athlete like that and say, he's just so good. We, we will consider him and we will take him. But apart from, you know, unless they're in the range to get a player like that or a Patrick Peterson, for example, just these incredible athletes you just can't turn down. I don't think they're ever going to draft a cornerback early. It's, it's going to be so that, you know, Shaquille was end of round three in a fantastic cornerback draft. And they basically waited to the last possible moment to get a cornerback in that great cornerback draft. Um, which was the the real end of round three. Um, and that's the earliest they've ever taken one. We know the range they like to say the corners is sort of four, five, six. I just think they'll continue to do that. Well, and that's where Pete Carroll, I, I feel like that's they get value out of taking players in that fourth, fifth, sixth round. And if you can make a guy like Trey Flowers into a starting level cornerback, then why not continue to do that, potentially save some money on your defense? And uh, it, it just it's makes a lot of sense to me. It's the scheme. You know, Michael Lombardi a few years ago ran through it and said that, you know, you don't in this scheme, you don't have to pay cornerbacks. You know, we all want a Richard Sherman type who can produce six to eight interceptions a year. You know, that'd be great to have. But in this scheme, those opportunities aren't always there. It's it's not really a necessity. You're covering a very small area of the field. You don't travel. The safeties are more important. The linebackers are more important. It's just a scheme. Well, and I don't think you can fault down necessarily for going for corner even early on in the draft because you look at what the Seahawks struggled with last season. You had a struggling Trey Flowers. They never really had a solid nickel corner to to have inside. And with the loss of Justin Coleman, we saw what kind of a, an impact that had on the defense. So, you know, for a, an outside guy to to look at the Seahawks and say, yeah, they could really use a corner in their first three picks of the draft. It, it makes sense to me. Yeah, I think, you know, the outside perception is, is always, I mean, the, the number of times the Seahawks get mocked with a cornerback early is, is it's incredible really it's every year well was, i credit it, it, dan for waiting till the end of round two rather than going with the first pick <laughs> i mean even when they had sherman and maxwell i think i seem to remember there were like mock drafts saying ah, they'll take a corner you know real high profile mock drafts um so it, it's always been a thing I, what i would say is if there is anybody out there who is listening to this who is not a seahawks fan just wait on the cornerback so you know if, you, <laughs> if you're doing a seven round and i think one in round five or something like that you know they're not going to they're not going to go that route uh, early, but I think the two other picks that down there he has, he has kind of nailed the uh, the need areas. But I, I would be I would be surprised if the Seals do not take a receiver with one of these first three picks. It's just it is the year of the receiver, so they generally take a player from the best position group, and I think they will take one with the first three picks uh, this year. All right, Rob. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll come back after the break. Let's talk about the wide receiver that you would like to see the Seahawks take with that first pick overall. Do that next. Coming up. Rob Staten of SeahawksDraftBlog.com joining the show, talking about the draft, the combine just two weeks away, and we have some mock drafts 
Tom Fernelli of CBS Sports, ESPN Todd McShay. We got RJ White of CBS Sports. We'll run those down. But Rob, you know, you're the one guy of all the mock drafts that I've seen that has a wide receiver projected to the Seahawks. And with your mock draft, it was a player that you know, we that we talked with the uh, director of the Senior Bowl about Brandon Ayuk. He's a fantastic player, Brandon. Uh, he's, he's just a really, really good player. Um, I think he's underrated within the media. I don't think the teams will underrate him. I mean, his just acceleration is incredible. His ability to to pick up a race of knots, get downfield, take the top of a defense, his yak ability on you know screens and, and bubble screens and you, know, you can you can manufacture the work to get the ball in his hands and he will just explode through um, blocking and, and get downfield. I like his personality. I like his character. There are little things that you can work on. He's not the complete player. If he wasn't being the top 10, you know, he's, he's not the most physical. I don't think he's going to win many contested catches immediately, but he's just so fast that I, I just don't think you need to. And I think for teams who love to get the ball downfield, you know, teams who maybe had a look at Kansas city and have said, okay, what are they doing? Well, and they have so much speed on the outside. I think that Brandon, Ayuk. I mean, there, there is for me, there are four receivers in this class. That you know, I, I think that would be perfect for the Seahawks, and Ayuk is one of them. I think that he would be an absolute. If they can get him at twenty-seven, I think that would be an absolute steal. I think Henry Ruggs is going to be off the board. I think Denver may well take him at number fifteen. He's going to run a four-two. John Ross ran a four-two and ended up in the top ten. I think Henry Ruggs is going to see a similar boost. I mean, he just he's the fastest of the lot. He is an incredibly speedy. Teams are going to constantly have to be conscious of where Henry Ruggs is on the field. Again, he's not the perfect player. But I think teams will see him as such a dangerous weapon, somebody who has to be game-planned every week, that he's going to go a lot earlier than perhaps the grade will say he should be late first or early second, but he'll probably go in the top 20. Uh, Jalen Riga at TCU, very explosive, very fast. I think he's going to run in the four threes. I think he'll probably push 38 to 40 inches in the vertical. He is a red zone threat because he can leap up, high point, put the ball out of the air against bigger cornerbacks because he is so explosive and quick. And again, a player that, like Ayuk, like Ruggs, is going to really keep a team honest. And then the other one is KJ Hamler, who is a little bit more dynamic, shorter, smaller type of player. Maybe not going to run it quite as well as the other three, um, but very, very fast on, you know, creates very easy separation across the middle, can get downfield. When they get the ball in his hands, he can create. He's good on special teams. So is Brandon Ayuk. And Jalen Riga, by the way, and I think the Seahawks could do with a new return guy that seems to be phasing Tyler Lockett off that. I think they're the four guys. If you could get one of those four with your first pick, I think Russell Wilson will love that. I think of the perfect compliment to what the Seahawks already have. That would be the direction that I would think would be the best value for Seattle at 27. Well, if they don't go with the offense, it, it does seem like the Seahawks' needs are on the defensive line. And we will see what they end up, uh, how they end up addressing that through free agency, but if they make it to the draft, you know, edge seems to be a popular pick for mock drafts for the Seahawks and rightfully so considering the number of sacks that they put up this last season, considering a guy like Clowney going into free agency and people may be projecting that he won't stay with the team. And so I, I do see a lot of those guys. We talked about Okwara from Notre Dame and this next player is a guy that both Tom Fernelli of CBS sports, ESPN, Todd McShay they have on their board for the Seahawks and similar to the size of Aquara, uh, Terrell Lewis, the edge defender from Alabama, 6'5", 252 pounds. They both have him going to the Seahawks. I'll be very surprised if he goes in round one. I mean, he's, he's very highly cut for a start, which means, you know, high waist, long legs. It's not the traditional 
body type for a pass rusher that the Seahawks have gone for. I think that with Lewis, he has had such a, a history of injuries. I mean, he, you know, basically two years wiped out because of the injuries. Has never quite looked the same since he came back. Um, his production in 2019 was so-so. He never really had a dominating game. You know, Aquara had a dominating game against Virginia, but Lewis never really had that. Mm. Um, and bear in mind that he was playing for an Alabama team that, you know, boat raced a number of teams. You, you were thinking, well, come on, you know, let, let's see a big performance from him. I, I just think that... You know, the Seahawks have really placed quite an emphasis on availability. You know, within last year, they they took players who played a lot of football, who had been durable, who had, had been healthy. And I don't think they're going to go down this road. I, I don't think you can, I don't think the production and the performance and the tape is there with Lewis. And I think that the medical side of things as well is, is probably going to keep him. I, I think he'll probably last probably into the middle rounds um, as a consequence of this. I, I think it's pretty unlikely that the Seahawks would take him in their first pick. All right, Rob. Well, sticking on the defensive line, I think this is the last mocked prospect on the defensive line that uh, we saw from Dalton Johnson of NBC Sports, and he has LSU's Clavon Chason going to the Seahawks as an edge defender. So, uh, Clavon Chason is is a kind of a flavor of the month uh, player. A lot of people are mocking him in the top fifteen. I mean, he's a very likable guy. He's, his interviews are amazing. He's a team leader. He wore the number 18 jersey for LSU. They, they, they have now two number 18 jerseys, one for offense, one for defense. Lloyd Cushenbury, the center one, or the offense one. Uh, Chason had the uh, the defensive one. This is, uh, as people were probably well aware by now, is given to the player who most characterizes leadership and, and quality person and stuff like that, you know. So great character. Teams will love him, no doubt. Um on, when you just look a look at him, he looks the part. You know, he's lean, he's long, he looks like a, you know, like a, a Sam Leo type of player. The problem I have is that I don't really understand. You, you kind of have to see something as well. I mean, he missed most of last season with an injury. This year, he had six and a half sacks. Um, most of those were on on stunts. You know, he has a lot of his pressure on manufactured. It's manufactured pressure. It's on stunts. It's it's creating situations for him to use his athleticism to burst into the backfield. He had six and a half sacks, as I mentioned. One of those sacks was actually when Oklahoma had the the great idea of of have a, have a wide receiver try and block him off the edge, um, which <laughs> did not end well. Um, and, and again, you know, like LSU have had, it's a bit like Lewis. You know, LSU had so many games this year where they were so far ahead in games, and it is the ideal opportunity to pin your ears back and get after the quarterback. And he didn't really do it. So you've you know you've got a guy who's not really had any college production, who's had injuries. His spark testing when he was in high school. Was I think he ran a four six nine, which is not particularly great, um, given that he wasn't the biggest. He was about two hundred and twenty pounds. So I think we kind of need to see him test. And if he runs a four four at the combine and jumps a forty inch vertical, you say, okay, there's some upside there. And maybe he didn't show his best football at LSU, but there's there's something to work with. He's got the frame, he's got the athleticism, he's got the character. You're bringing him with a high pick, and then and you let him go. Uh, but if he doesn't test as well as maybe some people are just assuming then what have you really got there? You've got a player with injury history. You've got a player who hasn't really done it in college, not really produced. I mean, PFF had um, a report on him this, uh, this week that said that he sort of had X number, you know, like 70-something snaps where he was in an obvious pass rushing situation. He had something like six, seven pressures or something like that, mm. which was, you know, really poor production, not what you'd expect at all. And everybody's sort of projecting him in the top 20. And I've never really seen him like that. I've always kind of more seen him as a, a round two, three developmental type of player 
Now, I'll, if he if he runs great at the combine and tests well at the combine, I'll hold my hands up and say, look, upside wise on a draft fund, there's not a lot of edge rushers. I can see him getting pumped way up the boards and going very very early. But at the moment, I just don't see it. It could potentially be be ideal for the Seahawks if he tests and he has the arm length and everything like that. But I think we kind of have to see it first before we say with any confidence that he could be a target for them. Well, you bring up his pressure rate and the Seahawks historically. We've heard Pete Carroll talk about pressure percentage and how important that is to him. So a guy like Jadivian Clowney, who, yeah, he only gets three sacks on the year, but, you know, has a pressure percentage rate that's upwards in the 20s. You know, that's something that I, I think Pete Carroll sees as very valuable. So what I'm hearing from you is that maybe this isn't the right spot. Well, I've got a, um, I think I've found the article where um, it says uh, he had four pressures against the Georgia offensive line, five against Texas and two against Alabama. But even with big second half leads and an elite athletic profile, Chason never came close to dominating. He finished the year with a 78.9 pass rushing grade and only 35 pressures on 370 pass rushing snaps in 2019. Mm. Nothing about those numbers screams first round pick. Chason uh, rushed the passer on 65 third and long last season when LSU brought at least four defenders. He collected only seven pressures on those pass rushes for a 66.9 pass rushing grade. So as you can see, you know, there's... There's not a lot of production there. You know, when he's put in positions to actually get after the quarterback, favorable situations, times when you would expect, you know, a top 20 or first round pass rusher to really get after it, he didn't produce. So there's a question mark there. I would, I, I, like I say, he's getting pumped up the boards very, very early. I think it's convenient to have, you know, people, oh, I could do with an edge rusher here. I, oh, well, I'll put Caleb on chasing him in my mark draft. In the top <laughs> but he's, he's got a lot to prove at the combine. Well, moving on, another player at LSU mocked to the Seahawks, and this one coming from R.J. White of CBS Sports. He says Grant Delpit, the safety from LSU, could fall to the Seahawks at 27. Yeah, I don't really understand what's happened in the last month because Grant Delpit's gone from somebody who was, you know, widely regarded as, you know, one of the absolute top 15 players in the draft, you know, even a top 10 pick, to I'm, I'm seeing him increasingly mocked at the end of round one or even in round two. I mean, Lance Zealand put him in, in round two. Um, or at least not in the first round. And I don't really get it because he does everything well. I mean, he, he's he got great range, so you can you know leave him deep and, and have him roam around the field uh, as a center fielder. His read and react is superb, so he can identify when it's a running play, fly up to the line of scrimmage and deliver a hit. Um, if he plays up at the line of scrimmage, his run support is very, very good. Um, he's had interceptions and turnovers in his career. He can deliver hits. The only suspect area is tackle. Now, he has a lot of missed tackles, mm. but I kind of feel like, well, if you've got a, a safety who does absolutely everything, the tackling is something, yeah, it's a problem, but it's something you can work on. I mean, like at the start of the year, people were saying he's so talented that, and he's, he's got great, he's like six foot three, 200 pounds. People were saying he's, he could be a cornerback. You know, the teams might actually draft him to play as a shutdown corner. That's how good he is in coverage. That is how athletic he is. That's how perfect his size is. For a player who has all of these positives to to fall this late simply because of the tackling issue um, seems a bit strange to me. Like something's not quite right here. And I don't think he's going to fall below Dallas. Now, if the Seahawks take Grant Delpit in the round one, then they've had an amazing free agency period because I can't see them drafting a safety in the first round unless they've addressed the defensive line. Um, they've at least re-signed their offensive linemen so that that's not an issue and that they've added some weapons for Russell Wilson. And if they do all three of those things in free agency, then, wow, that's amazing. And they can probably afford to take a safety in the first round. 
But I, I'm guessing they won't have done all of those things and that there's probably going to be other positions that they will look at in this first round. As much as I like Grant Delpit, I think you have to say they've traded for Quandre Diggs. They've spent a second round pick on Marquise Blair already. And they like Bradley McDougall is adding a fourth safety to the mix, the best use of resources. Probably not as much as I like Grand Pitt and would love to see him in Seattle. Well, and if it does uh, fall that way and a guy like Pete Carroll is taking a safety that high, again, I, I go back to the times where Pete Carroll's drafted guys in the secondary that high on the draft. Uh, things have worked out pretty well. So uh, <laughs> Earl Thomas comes to mind uh, being you know the only defensive back that Pete Carroll's taken in the first round. So I I would like it very much if if Pete Carroll thought that highly and then you know you have but yeah you go back and you say yeah they took Marquise Blair in the second round last year that was you know one of the highest defensive backs they've taken uh, since Earl Thomas and uh, you know where is he going to fit in in terms of being behind Quandre Diggs and being behind Bradley McDougal you know that would they they seem to have some depth at that position now. It would be interesting, and I'm looking at RJ's mock draft here. You said you wouldn't see him falling that far beyond uh, Dallas, and he actually has Trayvon Diggs, uh, the cornerback from Alabama, going to Dallas at pick 17. I, I you know, I think the one, I think the Seahawks probably will add safety at some point because I think that you know we've seen enough from Delano Hill and and probably Tedrick Thompson to know what they are at this stage, and I, I do think that there's a decent chance that the Seahawks will be very high on Kyle Duggar um, from Lenoir Ryan, mm. because, the, the, you know, I think that the more I've watched of him, the more impressed I've been. I think that the senior bowl, he carried himself well. I just love his attitude. He talks like a grown man. He plays like an alpha male. You know, that, that's the kind of thing that they look for. He's got amazing special teams value as a returner. Um, I, I can imagine him being a really good gunner as well. I could see the Seahawks bringing him in, maybe even, you know, day two, and and throwing him into the competition there and thinking that they can they can forge a role for him. You know, it's not quite if you take Delpit in round one, you you're playing Delpit, aren't you? You're playing Diggs and Delpit next year. Marcus Blair's kind of on the outside looking in, so it's Hugo Amadi. Um unless they play these guys as like a big nickel or something. Um McDougal's on the outside looking in. You've got Thompson and Hill still on the roster, you know, you'll probably have to cut them. It just seems like a backlog to me. But if you if you take Duggar at same round three then he, he could be a special team before you predominantly to start with. And then you sort of see how it goes and see if he can build himself up into a starting role. But he's got so much potential, so much talent, so much of the attitude that they look for. I do think that that would play a part into this, where I think actually they might prefer to go in a different direction in round one and then go and get a Kyle Duggar a little bit later on. This next mock draft I wanted to ask you about, Rob, this, this cracked me up because Tyler Roman of NBC Sports He's on mock draft 11.0. And I don't know when you get up to 11, why you point oh it. Uh, I would just think you'd just go with the straight numbering at that point. But uh, mock draft 11.0. And he has Josh Jones of Houston, the offensive tackle, going to the Seahawks. Well, regular regulars to the blog will know that it's kind of one of my pet hates that every <laughs> mock draft has to be given a point oh, uh, because one, it is not an Apple update. And um, second thing is no one ever no one ever um, adjusts their sort of eighth mock draft to make it eight point one no. or eight point two. So what's the point of the point? <laughs> you know, it doesn't make any sense. Just call it mock draft eleven. It doesn't need to be mock draft eleven. Oh, just put here's an update to mock draft. You yeah. know, it's like you're eleven when you get like your eleven point oh. Why do we need the point? It just, it's 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 pointless. So get rid of it. 
I think once you get up to 11 too, and you're not even to the combine yet, just put the date of the article on there. I, I just, you don't even need a number. Yeah. I know. I know. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, who did he, who did he have? <laughs> Josh Jones, the tackle at uh, Houston. Okay. I mean, it, but there's a, there's a chance the Seahawks could take a, a you know a reasonable chance the Seahawks could take an offensive line with a with their top pick. Of course, it really depends what happens with George Fant and um, and Jermaine Fedi. Um, if they both leave, then that becomes quite a, a serious need. You know, they, they would need to bring somebody in to play right tackle. Of course, they could do that in free agency. They've they've tended towards veteran offensive linemen and um, and then drafting sort of later on in the draft, you Phil Haynes, for example, and Jamarco Jones and people like that to come in and, and develop them and coach them up. So we'll have to see what they do. I, I think it is a decent sort of first round. There's going to be a lot of offensive linemen going in the first round. And the flavor of the month, guys, are Jedrick Wills at Alabama, who you know suddenly seems to be a top 10 pick. I, I don't quite buy into that for me. He's, he's more of a you know, late first, early second. Mackay Beckton is another one. I mean, we have to see how he tests because he's about 370 pounds. And the last player who was projected round one, I can't remember his name. He ended up, was it Orlando Brown? He ended up at Baltimore and he, he came to the combine weighing about 370 pounds, had a terrible combine and ended up dropping to round four. So, you know, you, you he's actually had a decent career, but, you know, you, you get the point, you know, if he comes to the combine and doesn't test well, he's not going to go in the top 15. I really like Isaiah Wilson at Georgia. I think that he is fantastic. I think he's somebody who teams will love a lot more than the media. Um, he just is the perfect, I think if we're talking about traits, about six, seven, 310 pounds has barely any body fat. Um, just a, an absolute giant of a man. I can imagine if he's there in the late first round and the Seahawks have not addressed their offensive line situation. He, for me is exactly the type of player that the Seahawks would take. Uh, Josh Jones, we'll have to see because he, we need to see how athletic he is, how explosive he is, whether he has all of the tools that they look for. For me, he's a bit raw. He's a guy who's maybe a little bit overrated. I thought he he had a very good last day at the Senior Bowl practice, but before that, had had some rough moments. I think he's somebody who's going to need time. You might have to live with some growing pains for a couple of years. And for me, there are just more preferable offensive linemen, such as Isaiah Wilson. If he was there at the end of the end of the first round, sign me up for some of that. Well, let's close this off, Rob, with the mock draft that I think makes more sense than any of the ones we've talked about. Kevin Hansen of Sports Illustrated, he is dialed in to what the Seahawks like to do, and he has the Seahawks trading their pick to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. <laughs> yeah, the Buccaneers move up to the first round to get Jacob Eason in this mock draft, and he has them giving up the 45th pick overall in the so the second their second round pick in 2020 along with a 2021 second-round pick for the Seahawks, which to move up into the first round from 45, that that seems like not quite enough compensation to me. Yeah, that's quite a drop. I mean, I think that um, I, there's obviously a very decent chance that they will trade down if they keep the pick. And look, I, again, I say if, because I think that this could be the kind of year when they do trade their first-round pick. I mean, every, everything is on the table. And if there's a great defensive lineman out there who they could bring in for that first-round pick, I think they will seriously consider it, especially because they've got the two second round picks coming up as well. They will feel a little bit, well, not a little bit confident, even more confident than they otherwise would to potentially trade that pick. But if they do keep it, I think trading down for teams moving up to get a quarterback is a a logical thing. You know, they traded, I think, 25 in the past for Paxton Lynch, um, for Denver to come up and get him. I think that this is the kind of range where teams are going to start making calls to see if they can move up because what you're going to have is Joe Burrow is going to be the top pick. 
it's pretty obvious to me that Justin Herbert's going to go in the top six at some point, that one of the teams in there is going to convince themselves on his arm and his improv and sort of think they can coach the erraticism out of him. Um, and then there's the two attack of our lower question is that, you know, he's either going to go to Miami very, very early or somebody else, or he could have this huge drop because the thing with Tua is that nobody's going to know the state of his career by the time the draft comes around. Yes, you can do your tests. Yes, you can have projections from doctors. But the sheer fact is that we are months and months away from knowing whether things like blood is going to restore back to the hip, whether he's going to have total ability to mobility and be able to move around, that he's going to have the same throwing technique that he had previously, that he's going to be able to do the same things on a football field that he did. We're not going to know how he, whether he can take a hit or not. We're not going to need, know whether he's going to be shying away from contact. All of these things we're not going to know. And the idea of somebody giving him $30 million guaranteed of somebody else's money, I think it's a little bit of a stretch. So I'm not sure that he's going to go in the top five like a lot of people think. But let's say he lasts, then this is the kind of range where the Seahawks might actually be able to get a decent haul out of somebody trading into the first round because of the value of that fifth round option on the contract. You've then got, even if Tua goes in the top 10 and everything's hunky-dory with him, you've got um, Jordan Love, you've got Jacob Eason, who could easily go in that range as well. So I think there's a, there is a decent chance they could trade down. I mean, I think that, again, it's all going to come down to, to who's on the board and the trades. And, you know, I mentioned, I'm, I'm trying to look for guys with trades. I'm trying to look for the guys that are really high upside. I can imagine the Seahawks taking, you know, we talked about the receivers yet, yet the, with speed, with Ayuk, Ruggs, Riga, Hamler. Um, I think that Cesar Ruiz, if they move on from Justin Britt, has got traits that they would really love, you know, to, to anchor from the interior and, and be a great center for them. Um, Isaiah Wilson has got that great arm length. I mean, there are some others. I mean, Prince Taker Bonogo is kind of a forgotten man of this offensive line class. Amazing athlete. He's going to run a sub 540. He's going to be very explosive. He's going to show power. His mobility is amazing for Auburn. I think he could play a player that could play left or right tackle in the future. I think that he's going to go a lot earlier than people realize. Raekwon Davis, who is a Calais Campbell type defensive lineman probably needs to show a bit more in terms of the way of production, but there just aren't many six foot seven, 315 pound defensive linemen with barely any body fat like him. I mean, he just looks, he's a get off the bus first type of player that I can imagine them being really, really interested in. And, and there are one or two others as well that, you know, you could see them sort of going for um, that could even tempt them away from trading down this year, depending on what kind of needs they've got left after free agency. But yeah, you know, they're a team that loves to trade down. They're the team that says we can get the same value at 27 as we can get at 40. They move down. People get infuriated by it. Uh, <laughs> but at the end of the day, what people need to remember is a lot of the times the player that they trade down, they would have taken the pick any in the original pick anyway. Right. So, um, you know, you might as well have the extra stock if you're going to do that. May as well. And uh, I, there was one other quarterback. You, you addressed uh, the issue of Tua potentially falling in the first round of the draft, maybe even toward the back end. I'm kind of curious, what was your take when you saw Carson Palmer advising Joe Burrow this past week that maybe the Bengals aren't that committed to winning and how that could maybe play into this scenario where, you know, Joe Burrow seems like the number one pick overall, but, you know, could we see an Eli Manning type situation starting to form here? I think that Joe Burrow and his family and the people who are representing him are probably going to be having some serious conversations over the next few weeks, um, probably over the next few days, because if you, I don't know if you saw it, he was on the Dan Patrick show. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just before the Super Bowl, maybe just after. And since he was asked about it, you know, where, where do you want to go? And in the past, he's kind of been, I want to go where people want me. 
which was seemed to be, you know, as, as good a, an answer to say, I'm happy to go to Cincinnati as possible. But then he was sort of saying, I want to go to a franchise that is committed to winning. And I think the thing with the Bengals is they could put this all at ease by turning around to Joe Burrow at the combine or whatever, going, we are committed to winning. We will do what it takes to enable you to win a Super Bowl here. The problem is, is that the Bengals have run like a family business. They're run by Mike Brown, who treats it as a, it's it's his pension fund, essentially. It's his ability to, they, as far as he's concerned, as long as he is making money, it's the only salary, the only business that he has. Um, if, if he and his family are making money, then he is happy. And he doesn't really care about the team's progress. And they don't have a GM and they don't really do anything like a proper team should. Their facilities are poor. Now, if you're Joe Burrow and you look at this, you don't want to end up in some kind of wasteland, never achieving what you could achieve if you get stuck there. And I think that things like what Carson Palmer said are going to matter. And the other thing is, is that Mike Florio mentions this every day, that the Dolphins owner wants Joe Burrow. Mm-hmm. That's the guy he wants. And when owners start getting involved with stuff like that, usually there's a bit of pressure in, installed and then teams end up going with what the owner wants them to do. Right. The Dolphins have three first-round picks. If it was any other team other than the Bengals, if Joe Burrow said, I don't want to play for you, I will not sign this deal, I think that any other team would go, okay, well, if there's three first-round picks on offer, we will take that and we will move on. The Bengals are completely different. I think the Bengals are more likely to say, don't care, we're taking you anyway. <laughs> and then if you don't want to play for us, you can sit out the whole season. Right. And then what would happen is that he would re-enter the draft in, a fo- in the following year, and then he has to decide whether or not he wants to jeopardize $30 million in a year when Trevor Lawrence is going to come into the draft as well to go through the whole process again um, and, and what, what that will mean having had a year away from football. So it's, it's a very complicated issue. I've written about this this week. What I think is going to happen is I think that over the next few weeks, we're going to hear increasingly Miami speaking to the media saying they want Joe Burrow or making it plain that they want Joe Burrow. Mm -hmm. And that will put a bit of pressure on the Bengals and will make this more of a talking point than it currently is. And then it's going to be up to Joe Burrow's people, whether or not they think that they've got, because what Joe Burrow's people don't want to do is say, we don't want to be in Cincinnati, make life difficult for themselves and then not have any option because Bengals say, no, we're not, we're not going to trade the pick. So they, they're in a really difficult position because they can't, they don't want to destroy their stock in Cincinnati before it's even started. To sort of sum up that, you know, what I think will happen is I think the Bengals will end up drafting Joe Burrow, whether he likes it or not. But I think that we're probably over the next few weeks, we are going to see the Dolphins try and create a situation where they can try and get that number one pick. And I think that's where Joe Burrow would rather be. Well, and what we heard a lot on Sunday, too, is this idea of the Dolphins trading up with Washington, who holds the number two pick. And if that is just something that's building in the media or behind the scenes to try and that could be the Dolphins maybe putting a little bit of pressure on the Bengals and saying, hey, here, we're going to be at number two. And, you know, all these picks that are going to Washington could be going to you and you might even find out that bro doesn't want to come to you. And, and that way, if you make the decision that you're not going to go with him at one, he's going to fall to us at two. Anyway, I just, the problem with the Bengals is just, you know, they're, they're a team that, you know, as far as I'm, I, I, I would be surprised if, if when the college football season finished that, you know, Mike Brown or whoever was watching that national championship and was like, Oh, great. That's our guy next year. Yeah. And the, from deal. that moment, 
that's it. Done, done, made mind up. Not even going to think about it. That's the, that's the guy. And as soon as that happens, then he, he's the kind of bloke that, I mean, if you remember, Carson Palmer said, I've had enough, I want to leave Cincinnati. And there were a lot of teams, I say a lot of teams, there were some teams who would have been interested in trading for Carson Palmer. And Mike Brown said, no, I am not trading him as a point of principle. I think the Seahawks, I mean, I'd, I'd heard a little whisper, I mean, we're going back years and years now, but the Seahawks were very interested in Carson Palmer in 2011. You know, this is when Matt Hasselbeck left. Oh, yeah. And Pete Carroll obviously had a history with Carson Palmer. You know, why wouldn't they have been interested in Carson Palmer? But the Bengals were just not, there was just no interest from the Bengals' point of view in making a trade. And then what it actually took to get the deal done was Oakland's owner passing away and Hugh Jackson essentially taking control of the franchise because Al Davis had died and deciding that what Al Davis would have wanted him to do was to spend two first round picks on Carson Palmer. <laughs> and that's, and it was because the offer was so great and that the Bengals were not going to get anything for a guy who essentially retired anyway. I mean, how could they not turn down that deal? And that's what brought Carson Palmer back to football. But Carson Palmer was willing to retire and walk away. And that was, that was it because of the Bengal stance. And I just cannot imagine any scenario where Mike Brown goes, yeah, you know what? I will take draft picks instead of Joe Burrow. I mean, he was asking, they should have traded AJ Green and Tyler Eifert and Geno Atkins and Carlos Dunlap. Apparently they wanted a second round pick for Tyler Eifert. Oh gosh. On the trade deadline. I mean, this is just, the franchise is run shambolically. I do feel a little bit for Joe Burrow. I actually think he's probably good enough to elevate a team um, beyond what they actually deserve to achieve. Mm -hmm. But I, I just don't have any faith in their coaching staff in Cincinnati. You know, I think they'd have been better off sticking with Marvin Lewis with hindsight. And then you, you know, they have got some good players, but you know, they've got enough. They're going to be, they never, they never spend any money in free agency. You know, they let players walk all the time. You know, they've got so much cap space. Are they going to really spend to, you know, build an offensive line to protect him? Probably not. Are they going to give him, um, a defense in support, probably not. Um, so I feel for him. I actually think if he went to Miami, it'd be perfect for him. I, you know, as Brady is bowing out, the new Tom Brady ends up in Miami and it'd just be trolling the Patriots. It'd be, it'd be hilarious. I love it. It's about time that there's another dominant quarterback in the AFC East. So we will be watching what happens in the NFL draft, especially with those first couple picks see what the Dolphins do, see what smoke screens they put up over the next few weeks. And Rob, if people want to follow it, they can go to SeahawksDraftBlog.com, follow you on Twitter at Rob Staten. And we got a few listener questions here, too, that I think we'll put up at SeahawksDraftBlog.com here a little bit later in the week. If you want to help support what Rob does every offseason, you can go to Patreon.com slash SeahawksDraftBlog. You can also support what I do by going to Patreon.com slash Flock. F-L-O-C-K. Be sure and subscribe to the show. Tell your friends to subscribe. SBNation.com slash NFL podcasts. I'll be back later this week talking to Matt Weston of Battle Red Radio. We're going to be talking about Jadevian Clowney and what led up to his departure from the Houston Texans, how fans felt about paying Jadevian Clowney a long-term deal, and just what went wrong that led to him leaving for the Seahawks and that Pretty disastrous trade for the Texans. So we'll be talking to Matt coming up later this week. Stay tuned. We will talk to you then. Go Hawks.